Well, welcome. This is our third lesson in the four about Esther, a great young lady from ancient times. Let's start in prayer tonight, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for stories like this that inspire us to try to live in our lifetime, in our age that you've placed us with the kind of courage and bravery that this young woman showed. We're not faced with death, at least not yet, and yet she did face that and still was able to do as you had placed her there to do. And we thank you for this story. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you remember last time, we left Esther in a precarious position where she had agreed to go in and see the king and try to plead for the lives of the Jewish people who were in danger of annihilation. If Haman's edict is carried out, then Jews throughout the entire Medo-Persian Empire would be wiped out. Only thing I can assume is that they did not, that some provision in the edict must have said that they didn't have the right to bear arms and defend themselves. Because later we're going to find out when they're able to do that, they can prevail. But it seems that in this first edict, they were just helpless. And they would have been slaughtered and their property stolen. Since Haman couldn't get at Mordecai, his hated enemy, there is old Phil is here. I'm so proud of him, boy. He's a great scholar, and I'm glad to see you. Oh, it's young Phil, yes. Since Haman can't get at Mordecai directly because he's sort of a national hero, having turned in some perpetrators of a plot against the king, he comes up with a different plan. There comes Stan and Bernie. Oh, my land. They're just all manner of great students are coming in now. Right out of the woodwork, yes. Haman comes up with a plan that will get rid of all the Jews everywhere. And, of course, in the process, he'll get rid of Mordecai. And when this edict is posted, the people all over the kingdom, but especially here in the city of Susa, which hear about it first, are just devastated. They're weeping, carrying on, screaming, carrying, wailing, and other people are just celebrating because they they figure they're going to get rich when they can kill all these Jews and take their property. And Esther doesn't know what the edict doesn't know about it yet. And she's hears all the wailing and crying out there and asks a servant to go find out what it is. And her cousin Mordecai is at the gates there, and he's in sackcloth and ashes and. She sends better clothes down so she can get him inside to talk to him, and he won't take them. But he does send a copy of the edict in, and it shows exactly what the situation is. And then he says, you're the only one that can do this. You've got to go see the king and plead for our lives. And she said, well, I can't do that because if you just go in there and you're unannounced and he doesn't point the scepter at you, you're, you're dead and he hasn't asked for me in about a month. I, maybe I'm on his blacklist. I don't know what the deal is, but he said, you got to go, Esther. There's no plan B. So she said, well, all right. I want everybody to fast throughout the city. Get every Jew together and start fasting for three days, and we're going to do that in here, and all the maidens and me and our palace here, we're going to do that, and then I'll go in. And then you remember the famous words that she finishes with, and what were they? If I perish, I perish. Okay, now we're going to look at three scenes that Hollywood would just love. They would do a great job with these because they are so interesting. 
first scene is when Esther does go to see the king. So let's turn over to chapter 5 of Esther. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And it happened when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was on his hand. So Esther came near, touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What's troubling you, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even to half the kingdom, it'll be given to you. And Esther said, If it please the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for you. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Boy, now that's... That's just kind of a quick summary of what went on. I want you to imagine now in your mind how that scene may have looked. Now, this is my imagination of how it looked. First of all, Esther doesn't sleep a wink the night before. She is really worried, and so she's up all night worrying about this. She's purring. I imagine she's praying. She's certainly fasting. Next morning, she gets real up early, and her attendants find the most beautiful robe they can. It's a beautiful royal blue robe. They put in a gown on her with a robe around her, and her jewels and her crown is on there. And when she comes into the area where she's going to enter the throne room, God has just arranged for the sun to be shining behind her. So... She's just kind of got an aura of light. The sun is shining behind her. Got her beautiful dark black hair is just glistening. And she's standing there and she starts to come into the throne room. And you can imagine there's a big bustle of noise. The king's been real busy talking to some nobles up front. A lot of conversation. And all of a sudden a dead silence falls over that courtroom. You can just imagine, can't you? That They all look up and they see the Esther coming in there and they're just dumbfounded. Doesn't she know the law? What, what she thinks she's doing? And in unison, they just all turn to see what the king is going to do. What, how is he going to react to this? Because he's been in a pretty stormy mood now for some time. And this might not turn out so well for Esther, but they turn to see about him. And he's busy talking to some guys over some paperwork. And, he, and all of a sudden, he notices there's this hush. And he looks up. And the, the door to the throne room is still open, and the sun is shining behind her. And he, from the glare, he really can't tell just yet who that is. And she's coming forward toward him, and he notices the guards aren't making any attempt to stop her or to protect him, so they must not think there's a threat here. And then he can see who it is. And, of course, it's Esther. And this really warm feeling comes over him, and he starts thinking, Wow, boy, she looks terrific. She's a major fox, and it's been way too long since I've seen her. I gotta get, I've been way too busy on state business. i got to stop and smell the roses. And what in the world's troubling her that she'd come in here like that and risk her life? He isn't holding the golden scepter, but he reaches real quick and gets it and points it toward her. And meanwhile, of course, her pulse had gotten up well over 200. Her blood pressure is about 220 over 110. She thinks she hadn't eaten anything now, and she's getting a little lightheaded, thinks she's going to pass out in a minute. But, and, you know, there's a pause before he points that scepter at her. She seemed like an hour, but to him, it's quick, and he points it, and she touches it. And her pulse drops down to only about 60. 
not that far, only at 110 now. And blood pressure is still way up there, but she's feeling a lot better, and she lets a big sigh out. And before he, she can say anything, look what he says. Honey, what do you want? You know, you know I, I love you. I'll give you anything you want. I'll give you half the kingdom. That's before she says a word. God has prepared him. He's hadn't thought about her, I guess, recently. And now all of a sudden he sees this beautiful vision coming down the, toward the throne. And he's just impressed. And he feels really loving toward her. And God's prepared all this. He says, you can have anything you want. But Esther is wise beyond her years. She's had several late-night conversations with old Ahasuerus, and she knows that, you know, he doesn't do well when you just walk in and drop a complicated problem on him out of the blue. You just don't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't like that. He never has. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't react well to it. So she's been rehearsing how she's going to present this problem to him. She doesn't want to just blurt out the thing here in the middle of the court because there's Haman right there. And he's the perpetrator, but she doesn't, she doesn't want to bring that out right now. So she very coyly says, all I want you to do is come to a banquet right now. I've got a lunch prepared for you and for Haman. The king's, he's no dummy. So what do you think he's thinking? Oh, there's more to it than this. She's not going to risk her neck coming in here and just ask me to go to lunch. But maybe, and he may be thinking, you know, she told me about a plot against my life just a little while back. It could be something like that. And maybe one of these guys in the court here is the traitor, and that's why she didn't want to just blurt it out. Okay, I'll just, all right. Yeah. Boy, it'll be a nice diversion. I'm so tired of all this tedium in here anyway and these boring conversations. Come on, Haman, let's go. And they just drop everything and they go. Okay, now, here comes the banquet. The first one. Verse 6 of chapter 5. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What's your petition? It'll be granted to you, and what's your request? Even to half the kingdom. Same thing. Before she gets to say anything, he offers magnanimous gesture. So Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition, to do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I'll prepare for them tomorrow. And I will do as the king says. Well, now, I imagine Hesura's curiosity is going right to the roof. He's, what in the world is she, does she want? And by the way, this is a fantastic banquet. They've got unborn squid, salamander, almondine, emperor salad, not Caesar salad. They've got, oh, some of this... Cinnamon apple pie from one of the districts out there, one of the king's favorite, and some of the best wine you ever saw from. Pig pie. <laughs> it could be pig pie. No. Pig. Oh, fig pie. <laughs> I guess they pig pie. I don't know. And then they had wine about comes from the Tigris vineyards, 510 B.C. Really good, good stuff. Cost 40 shekels of wine skin. So she spared no expense, but now she is putting it off again and. He's a pretty busy man now, and he's getting a little annoyed with this. And he's thinking, why didn't she just tell me what she wants? I'm busy. What's, what's all this intrigue? And the look on his face probably tells Esther, this is it. You better not push this any farther. You better tell him tomorrow what your problem is. So she is going to do that. Well, 
One guy has completely misread the situation. And who is that? Haman. He, he just doesn't see it. He, see, he doesn't know anything about her heritage. He doesn't know she's a Jew, so he doesn't make any connection between what she might want and his edict. And so he just goes out, and boy, he is so full of himself, he can hardly stand it. Look at what he says here. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and he didn't stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house, sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Now, he's got all these cronies, so he's invited them in. They pretty much have to come because he's number two man in the kingdom. You don't want to offend him by turning him down. Haman recounts to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, every instance where the king had magnified him, how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one come with the king to the banquet but me, which she has prepared. And tomorrow I'm also invited by her to the king. Yet all of this doesn't satisfy me, because every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, and Zeresh's wife and all the friends said to him, Give me a break, Haman. Cool it, man. Have a gallows built, 50 cubits high. In the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And this advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. How tall are 50 cubits? 75 That's 75 feet high. You're talking about a really tall deal. He is going to make an example of this guy. And remember now, they don't hang him, they impale him. So he's going to impale him up there on this, this post and let him rot up there. And you can just imagine this. Boy, nobody will mess with Haman the hangman after this. You better not disrespect him. So it's, that, he just misread the whole thing. He has no idea what the deal is here. But there was a purpose for this delay. When... Esther looked at the king's face. She probably noticed that he was irritated that she didn't tell him at that first meal. And she may have thought about, I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell him. And then something makes her say, no, I better wait. There's a reason that I'm not supposed to tell him right now. And boy, there is a reason. And what is that? Well, we'll see. Chapter 6. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the books of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers that had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, Well, nothing's been done for him. The king said, well, Who's in the court? Well, we'll get to that in a second. What if, just imagine, if Ahasuerus had had a really good night's sleep, this whole story would turn out differently, wouldn't it? But in God's providence, he must have had some coffee late at night or something. He can't sleep good, and so he's just restless, and he just likes to hear his deeds recounted, especially those that made him look good. So he has this guy come in, and toward dawn, they just happen to select. Of all the things they could have read, the guy just happens to select the thing about the plot. And it also just happens to mention that Mordecai was involved and he was not rewarded. What if he had been rewarded? What if back there he had rewarded him? It would be a different story. He would, would have gone right on. They wouldn't have stopped. He wouldn't have thought, oh, well, okay. It wouldn't have been fresh on his mind. 
He wouldn't have been going in there the next morning thinking about, what, I, what can I do for this guy? Boy, we, that was really dumb. We, that was a bureaucratic oversight, not take care of him. So he's thinking about it, and he's, it's early in the morning. He goes in to start the day's business. And, of course, somebody else has gotten up real early. Haman, he wants to be first on the agenda. He wants to come in there before anybody else, catch the king when he's fresh, and get permission to execute Mordecai. So let's see what happens. The king said, who's in the court? This is verse 4 of chapter 6. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallons, which he'd prepared. And the king said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman comes in. The king says to him, Now notice, he does not mention Mordecai by name. What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Haman says to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? <laughs> and Haman says to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let a royal robe which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handled, handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. Let him array the man from the king's, whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback throughout the city square. Proclaim before him, this is shall be done to the, king, to the man whom the king desires to honor. Okay. <laughs> what if he had mentioned Mordecai by name? What do you think Haman would have said? He would have, he would have caught him off guard a little, but he wouldn't have he wouldn't have come up with all that. So he doesn't since he thinks it's himself. So he's already got he's already convinced that the queen has invited him to dinner twice now because she is so impressed with him, and she's probably going to ask the king to give him more power, more authority. So he's all full of himself. So he's convinced that this is him. Now, this is the scene that Hollywood loved, the second one. The first one was her going down in there to see the king. The second scene is when the king says, well, that's great. That's a great idea, Haman. I want you to do that for Mordecai. Can you just see the look on his face? It just goes, for who? Because what's he in there for? He's in there asked to kill Mordecai. Well, he sure can't bring that up now. King says to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horses you said, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you've said. Boy, about that time, Haman wished he hadn't been quite so eloquent. So Haman took the robe, the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback throughout the city square, proclaimed before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Oh, boy, now what's his mood? <laughs> Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home morning with his head covered. Haman accounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all the friends, everything had happened to him. All the wise men and Zeresh, his wife, they were seers there, said, if Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you'll not overcome him. You better leave him alone. You will surely fall before him. Haman gets home. Boy, he is in a foul mood after what he had to do. He kicks the dog. He is, he's hot, boy. He's, he's ranting on and on and on about this. and what He has been mortified, well, better mortified. <laughs> he has been mortified, and he is really, he's about as low as a man can go with the exalted office that he has. And these wife 
senses there's an issue here. And the soothsayers that are there also, which must have been there a lot of the time, said, you know, this guy's a Jew. You've got a problem. We're sensing that you better let him alone. Well, that's a little bit late. Because right then, who shows up? Okay. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. He didn't want to go. He's no mood to go to any more banquets, but he can't stay home. That would be, that's not an option. You can't offend the king and queen by that. And it's not all that bad. I mean, after all, he is the only guy being invited to this banquet along with the king. So he's pretty well thought of in the kingdom. It's not, it's not all dog doo-doo. But anyway, now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther. And the king said to Esther on the second day, this is chapter 7, also as they drank wine at the banquet, what's your petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted you. What is your request? Even half the kingdom, it shall be done. Queen Esther answered and said, If I found favor in your sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we'd only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. The king asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Oh boy. Talk about getting blindsided. King wants to know what's going on, and she now tells him what her heritage is. She says, I'm Jewish, and this edict that Haman has put out is going to kill us all. If it only going to be made slaves of us, I wouldn't have said anything, but he intends to kill us all, all over the kingdom. Me too. And we're not, we haven't done anything. And I got a hunch that she may have added something in here. And she said, you know, I, I know I can prove our loyalty because it was my cousin, a Jew named Mordecai, that turned in those plotters. We're loyal to you. We're not threats to you. We're good citizens. There's no reason why this should happen. And think for a minute. What's this going to make you look like in the eyes of the people out there? No, you're, you threw a banquet when you fed all these people for seven days. And it was, the idea was, oh, we're so benevolent and I take care of the poor. Everybody's equal in my kingdom. You get justice no matter who you are. And now how does this make you look? These innocent people that have ever done anything and are not a threat to you are all going to be killed. And people are going to steal their property all under your seal. How does that make you look? And that's not what he wants. That's not the, that's not the image this guy wants. So, boy, you can just imagine how he feels about it. And the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. I guess so. If looks could kill, that guy'd be toast. He's, the king is red in the face, and Haman has a color in his face, too. Green. He's about to lose control of his bladder. But he's only got one thing he can do, and that's plead for his life. So he throws himself on the couch. And when the king returned from the palace gardens to the place where they were drinking, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now the king said, Will this even assault the queen with me in my house? And the word went out of the king's mouth. They covered Haman's face. 
the king probably stormed out to try to collect himself a little. He is so mad at all that's happened here, and he's been duped by his trusted advisor, the guy he put in that position. And this evil guy has not only threatened Esther, who he probably could protect, but he can't protect these other people. They'd, by the laws of Medes and Persians, he can't rescind that decree. It's out there. And he looks he's going to look like a jerk, and that's not it's a, the opposite of what he wants to do. He can't trust Haman anymore. This guy's evil. He's come up with a plot like this. He's going to have to get rid of him for good. I imagine he's thinking, I imagine he's going to meet my lines tomorrow morning, up close and personal. But then the servants mentioned that they just have one more thing to say. And what was that? Oh, by the way, did you know what Haman was plotting to do? He was going to kill Mordecai. He's got some gallows out there ready for him. And the king says, are you serious? This imbecile was going to kill Mordecai, the national hero, the guy that turned him in? What in the world is he thinking? We won't even wait for tomorrow morning. Hang him on the doggone gallows right now. Go and pale him up there. And they take him and his sons, and they do so. So, when you think about it, there's a psalm that he just really does fulfill. Let's see if I can find it here. Turn over, if you will, and look at Psalm 37, 14 to 15. 37, 14 to 15. Who, has, who is laughing in heaven right now? Yeah. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. The sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. That's exactly what happens to Haman. He fulfills that promise right there. He had plotted to kill the Jews and unfortunately... It didn't happen for him. It didn't happen. I want you to think now a little bit more about some of these coincidences that have gone on. How God was doing, was working this all the way through. The day that the plotters were overheard about, about trying to kill Asuras, what if Haman hadn't been there that day? If he'd just been somewhere else? He was right where he needed to be to overhear that conversation. What if those guys had taken that conversation elsewhere? Yes, ma'am. Mordecai. Been Mordecai. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What if Mordecai had been somewhere else? Yeah. The day that he overheard the plotters. He would, that wouldn't have happened. Maybe Ashurst would have been killed. They might have been found out, and he wouldn't have been, but Mordecai would have got no reward for that. So God had him in just the right place to overhear that conversation. What if those two guys had been a little more cautious, as they should have been, held that conversation in a real quiet place where nobody could overhear them? No, they're out there where somebody could overhear them, which was pretty stupid, but it cost them their lives, of course. I heard it called a divine coincidence. Divine coincidence, sure enough. They're not. I think that could probably be said that there are no coincidences in a believer's life. None. Zero coincidences. You're so right. Don is pointing out that this, this supposed coincidence here is not a unique at all. It happens over and over and over in Scripture. In the story of Ruth, she just happens to go to a field to try to glean after the harvesters, and it happens to be Boaz's field. She could have picked any field. It might have been somebody else who would have run her off, or somebody would have let her glean there, but no, it was Boaz. And 
Boaz, of course, had been raised a half-breed. He'd been a half-Canaanite, half-Jew. He'd been subjected, I'm sure, to a whole lot of abuse as he was growing up. So you can just imagine how he felt if anybody was going to say anything ugly about this Moabite woman. There was only one other woman he knew who had left her home and come and had taken and accepted the Jewish faith and worshipped Jehovah. That was his own mother. So he wasn't going to put up with any garbage. So he tells those workers about Ruth, don't anybody say anything about her. Because if you do, I'll know about it, and you'll be sorry. And yeah, it was the story of Exodus where Pharaoh is raised to the position that he was just so he'd be there in time to do what he did. Think about Moses' mother. What if she had been too frightened to risk her life by putting him in the basket? Well, God would have preserved the people some other way, but he did it through Moses. So there's all kinds of, all through Scripture, you have that. Can you think of any other instances where God orchestrated the situation such that it turned out perfectly? But it didn't seem like it. It just seemed like it just sort of happened that way. Yeah, I think of Joseph as a very good example of that. His brothers really intended to kill him, or at least most of them. They might, one might have been able to save his life, but they had a better solution where they could make some money. So for 20 pieces of silver, they could sell him, and God takes him down there many years ahead, probably 13 years ahead of when this famine is going to take place. So he'd be in a position to do something like Esther and rescue the people when they needed him. Because if, that famine must have been really bad. But Egypt had plenty of grain. What if the pharaoh had said when he told him about the, how the dreams were interpreted and suggested this saving the grain plan, he said, oh, come on. That's, that's silly. We're not going to do that. No, we, that's foolish. No. Would God have preserved the Jewish people? Certainly would have. Some other way. What would have happened to the Egyptian people? Oh, more they'd have died in, by the thousands. God preserved them because Pharaoh did go along with what Joseph suggested. So all through Scripture you have those kind of things. Think about that today for us. Now, we're all concerned about the presidential campaign. Who is going to be elected president of the United States? I have the exact answer for that. Whoever God wants. Exactly. Whomever God wants. No one will get into that office if he, God doesn't want him in there. You remember there's, there's only one word that you've never heard in heaven. And that word is, oops, you've never heard that. There's never been a situation on earth where God says, oh, boy, I didn't know that was going to happen. Man, how'd that, how'd that turn out? No. So should we be concerned about who's elected? Well, I guess so, but how much effort should we pour into it? Because are we really citizens of this kingdom or which kingdom are we citizens of? We're aliens here, aren't we? Our citizenship in the book of Hebrews said their citizenship was somewhere else. And they kept looking for this other country they were going to go to. Let me give you a really sad little story that illustrates this. In Colorado, we had some zealots up there for a long time that were very concerned about the good old USA, that we just, everything had to be just right. And we had started a Bible study up there for Latins, Latinos in the country, that in the neighborhood there, in the city, English as a second language. We had about 30 of them coming. And of course, in the process, we're giving them the gospel. The thing was really taken off. 
Well, the zealots came to the elders, and I was an elder up there at that time, and they said, what are you guys doing? You've got to check those people for green cards. They could be here illegally. We said, we don't care if they're illegal or not. You know, but they're illegal, so they're, they're in God's kingdom. If we can save them or have them turn to faith, that's the most important part. We don't care what kingdom they're in. Well, you can't have them in it. Well, we didn't do it. We didn't start checking them. But the word got out that we were going to. Guess what happened to that ministry? It died. They left in total and never came back. Not a single one ever darkened the door of that church again. 30 of them. And we had, the thing was growing. We were having 20 and 30 and 35. And it was getting, it was being, and they were giving the gospel. But Satan managed to get our zealots so worried about being proper, good old USA, that we killed that ministry totally. But that's just, I guess I want to say, be, just be careful how much time and effort you pour into that. I dread this political campaign because you're going to get all these emails where people are going to tell you all these terrible things about one candidate or another, or they're going to be promoting one over the other. God's going to, he's going to decide. Now, you should vote, I think, but I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time on that campaign. Anyway, that's political gordology. That's not theology, that's gordology. <laughs> okay. Next time, we'll find out what's going to happen here because obviously the Jews are still in jeopardy. Haman's been dealt with, but that decree is still out there. And something's got to happen. The king can't do anything about it. He can't rescind it. So he's going to have to do something or allow other people to do something that can offset this, and he will. And we'll talk about that next time.